Hey, it's Tom Panneries. Before I start the show, I wanted to give a heads up. This episode discusses some of the controversies in our popular culture during the days leading up to the United States invasion of Iraq in 2003. As a result, you hear me sharing my personal opinions and political views, which are left-leaning. So listener discretion is advised. This is a public service announcement with guitar! Pop Culture Affidavit, episode 141. Shut up and sing while I eat my freedom fries. You have the Hello and welcome to episode 141 of Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. So if you're a regular listener to this show, then you know that there are times when I've looked at the more serious side of popular culture, or at least how our pop culture dovetails with or reflects particular world events or national feelings. For several years, I hosted a show called In Country, which reviewed Marvel Comics series The Nam, while also looking at films and other media that portray the Vietnam War. I spent a couple of years doing Fallen Walls Open Curtains, which was about the Cold War, and two years ago I did a miniseries called 9-11 in Popular Culture, which looked at some of the literature, films, comics, music, and other entertainment that looked at the attacks of September 11th of 2001. Last year, I did a few episodes that took a broader approach and looked at America through the lens of authors and filmmakers who have gone across the country to discover and look at its people, often around pivotal moments in our society. For this episode, I'm going to be doing something similar, which is going back 20 years to March 2003 and looking at some of the sentiment that abounded in the United States during our lead-up to the invasion of Iraq. Specifically, I'm going to be taking a look at the way public opinion was expressed back then, as well as a couple of specific controversies that made national and international news. In a way, this is a follow-up to that September 11th miniseries. As the war itself was considered the latest chapter in what George W. Bush and his administration referred to as the Global War on Terror. That phrase, War on Terror, became part of the cultural lexicon in the days following 9-11, especially during October and November as U.S. forces deployed to Afghanistan to help upend the Taliban, who had not only been an oppressive regime, but were also supposedly offering a home base for Osama bin Laden and his terrorist organization known as Al-Qaeda. Of course, bin Laden would not be found until May 2, 2011, when his compound in Abbottabad, Pakistan, was raided by SEAL Team 6, a raid that resulted in bin Laden's death. But in the fall of 2001, his location was unknown, and had been relatively unknown for the better part of a couple of years, as U.S. intelligence forces had been searching for him since the waning days of the Clinton administration. But in 2002, attention seemed to shift away from this mission in Afghanistan to one in Iraq. At least, that's how it seemed to the public and in the media. Truth be told, there were conversations about Iraq very quickly after the September 11th attacks, as reported by the 9-11 Commission, 
Notably, Paul Wolfowitz's comments that the administration should figure out some way to tie the attacks to Saddam Hussein, and Bush would be able to do that indirectly by folding the country of Iraq into a list of states that sponsored terrorism in his 2002 State of the Union address, where he first used the phrase axis of evil to describe Iraq, Iran, and North Korea. Interestingly, the United States had been working with the Iranian government on tracking down al-Qaeda operatives, and it was widely known that none of the hijackers on September 11th were Iraqi. But the case was made that Iraq harbored terrorists, and they had developed and were continuing to develop weapons of mass destruction, something that was not true. But the administration pushed the case that it was, and also made the case that our invading forces would have a very easy time in this war, just like they did in 1991 with Desert Storm. Vice President Dick Cheney famously said on a Sunday morning news show, I believe it was Meet the Press, that we would be greeted as liberators. The invasion itself began with airstrikes on March 19, 2003, and ground troop deployment the following day. It would last until May 1st, although the United States would have military forces in the country until June of 2011. There's a lot that can be said about the war in Iraq, especially when we look at the way it was covered on the news and the way it was discussed on political talk shows. We could also have a discussion about how it affected our country's political climate, especially as it went on and the country's stability wavered and it resulted in new threats such as ISIS. But that is larger than the scope of this particular podcast episode, which I'm going to deliberately try to narrow to February, March, and April of 2003, when the support for the war was high among the population, and speaking out against the war wound up having its own particular set of consequences. This war, as it was, became the second full-on war that I remember in my lifetime at that point. I was old enough to be alive when the United States invaded the island of Grenada in 1983, but aside from giving us the Clint Eastwood movie Heartbreak Ridge, I don't think we could call that a war on the level of, say, Vietnam, which our country was still recovering from after having left 10 years prior. The same could be said for the invasion of Panama in 1989, the objective of which was to capture Manuel Noriega. But Desert Shield and then Desert Storm, which happened in 1991 after Iraq invaded Kuwait, were the first time that I experienced the build-up toward a war and true combat. Well, at least as a civilian watching the war on TV. I was in eighth grade at that time, and what I remember about it was a lot of patriotism at school around with a lot of people talking about what they'd watched on the news the night before. We all got caught up in it, and while I'm sure that there were a few of my peers who didn't support the war, most of us did because, well, we were basically raised to. I know I've been a staunch Democrat since I first voted in college, and hold beliefs that are really against the idea of war, but I was raised in a fairly conservative household in a town on Long Island that is at least, at best, moderate to conservative in its political climate. Plus, I grew up in the 80s. So at 13, I'd spent the better part of the last five or six years watching action films and playing with G.I. Joe toys. A lot of what I saw in my entertainment was militaristic, and getting to watch war on live TV, even if it was just like lights flashing off of a ship in the Persian Gulf and scud stud Arthur King ducking possible missile fire, that was exciting. 
And Desert Storm was incredibly quick anyway, a conflict with very few deaths and a huge ticker tape parade in New York once the troops returned home. But in March 2003, I was 25, I was about to turn 26, and I was on the verge of getting married. A lot of changes across 12 years, especially when that time is pretty much your entire adolescence. Most importantly, my political beliefs had changed quite a bit. I talked about my 9-11 experience, as it was, during my 9-11 popular culture miniseries. But I want to bring up a little bit of that here because it's important, especially when it comes to the notion of patriotism. After 9-11, there was an outpouring of patriotic sentiment throughout the country. It's become a little too mythologized these days, as people seem to forget the other emotions of shock, anger, dread, and sadness that many of us felt, along with the number of hate crimes against Muslims and other middle peaceful and Middle Eastern descent. For my part, I felt uneasy about it. In fact, September 11th was, at least for me, the start of when I shied away from unabashed expressions of patriotism. And while I didn't say anything because I didn't want to take away from anybody else's feelings or, well, let's face it, rock the boat, I always felt that people who went to the mall and bought stuff from America the store, no, really, it was a store in the Pentagon City Mall, for all I know, it's still there, to dress themselves, these people dressing themselves up as walking flags while blasting Lee Greenwood's God Bless the USA from their Ford 150s, they always felt kind of smarmy. I still felt that way as we were ramping up to war in late 2002 and early 2003. Now, that patriotism was mostly expressed through what people were wearing and displaying, and I'll get to the most ubiquitous of those displays in a little bit. But whereas I remember some very straightforward pro-U.S. anti-Iraq war stuff, like that deck of playing cards, uh, if you remember this, this was essentially a hit list of Iraqi top brass, something that started at the Defense Intelligence Agency and that was released to the public via the Texas-based Liberty Playing Card Company. Uh, you know, mo that's probably the, the biggest, most egregious sort of piece of propaganda that was out there in that regard. Uh, Saddam Hussein, of course, being the ace of spades. But most of the merchandising around the war carried a safer sentiment than trying to get you to support the war. And it was one that was easy for everybody to get behind because it was also kind of, and forgive the word here, bulletproof. And that was support the troops. Now, this idea is not germane to the 2003 Iraq war. In fact, you know, you go back to all the way to like World War, I'm sure there's pre 19th century propaganda like this, we go back to the World Wars and this thing, and there's a whole sentiment of we should be supporting these troops from people who were uh, more hawkish in Vietnam. So the idea of support the troops is not new for 2003. It was a big part of Desert Storm. I mean, remember that big charity single, Voices That Care? <laughs> you know, granted, by 2003, charity singles were pretty much relics of the past. You did have music. You had, like, country artists like Toby Keith writing patriotic songs, speaking out in support of the war. Uh, there was that video for Three Doors Down's song, When I'm Gone, that featured live footage shot on the USS George Washington in October of 2002. Um, that song hit number four on the Billboard Hot 100 in April of 03. The video got a lot of airplay on VH1. I want to say it got a lot of airplay on TRL or at least on MTV, um, but I don't know. Uh, the song itself is a long-distance love song. 
that became associated with soldiers being away from their loved ones because of the video. Kind of, if there's like another equivalent, it's kind of like it's a long way to Tipperary, which was written in 1912. It was just a music hall song about, you know, my girl's there and we're, you know, we're, we're apart, but we'll be together. But then it became a popular military march and a uh, soldier's anthem during the First World War. But that one Three Doors Down song, along with other pieces of popular music, it's a trivia item at best. And I'll get back to popular music, especially country, later in the show. Right now, I am going to focus on the sentiment of support the troops and how we had one, essentially a ubiquitous piece of war propaganda that was the most effective as far as messaging. And that's because the message of support the troops was written right on it. And that is a magnet shaped like a yellow ribbon. The yellow ribbon has army significance dating back to the song, She Wore a Yellow Ribbon. It's also That's a traditional song. It dates back to Puritan times. It was also the title of a 1949 John Wayne movie. In more modern parlance, the symbol was used in the 1973 Tony Orlando and Dawn song, Tie a Yellow Ribbon Round the Old Oak Tree. It was actually about a convict who was in prison, but it was a huge hit. It got a lot of airplay on like the parent-friendly radio rock station during Desert Storm. The yellow ribbon is a symbol for wishing someone would come home in military or political sense gained more popularity in 1979 during the Iranian hostage crisis, and that set it up for its wartime association. By 2003, the idea that the yellow ribbon would make an appearance was a foregone conclusion, and the magnets started appearing just around the time the military and the Bush administration was making the final push toward war. Measuring at 3 and 7 eighths inches wide by 8 inches tall, these yellow ribbon magnets that have support our troops written in script were created and still are still manufactured by Magnet America, whom according to their website manufactured them in America and introduced them specifically to honor those serving in Iraq. Many of them were used on the sides and backs of cars. Now, varieties of the ribbon include one where half the ribbon is yellow and the other half is an American flag. There's also one that has a cross in it or on it. I'm not sure if Magnet America made that or if that was an off-brand version. But what I do remember is that they were all over cars and SUVs at the time. And that's both appropriate and ironic. You know, a war for Middle Eastern oil couched in defending democracy and or freedom and displaying it on a gas-guzzling SUV. You couldn't write that better. Full disclosure, I drive an SUV. So there you go. Anyway, the propaganda apparatus, as it was, was a very slick one. It was produced through corporate partnerships and media coverage. Fox News Channel was in its golden age in the early 2000s. Its pundits were cheerleaders for the Bush administration and had been Republican Party stands since the channel was founded in, I think, 1996. But you also have the NFL and Major League Baseball, especially the NFL, wrapping themselves in the flag with flyovers, spotlights in the national anthem or God Bless America, and live cuts to troops abroad watching games in a mess hall. 
is, you know, I used the word smarmy to describe patriotism earlier at House I Felt. And it was always kind of, it was a little bit of that, a little cloying. Because the idea was that the reasons behind the war were never actually considered when you were supporting it. We got a lot of rhetoric about defending freedom, but that overshadowed political and economic motivations, especially those of companies who stood to gain a good amount of money from the war. There wasn't much said about what could possibly happen to the men and women fighting there, by the way, or after they came home, you know, what would happen to them. As the years wore on, we would see a number of nonprofit organizations take up the cause of making sure vets were taken care of, and they would do wonderful work to help those soldiers and those vets who needed it. But the government was guilty of a fair amount of neglect when it came to providing help. There was significant post-war trauma, a spike in veterans dying by suicide. It just didn't seem like that was a priority for our country as much as getting into the war was. You know, I know I sound cynical here, um, but it just seemed as if the troops were being used as props. And across administrations, as we have continued to go through the remainder of conflicts in both Iraq and Afghanistan, they kind of still are at times. The NFL still brings up the mythological version of the Pat Tillman story. Troops doing surprise visits at school assemblies and other public events are still feel-good or news or social media stories. But... That's how you get support for a forever war, especially since you can never maintain the fervor you had for military conflict when you're marching in. In March 2003, Gallup reported that 72% of Americans favored the war in Iraq, with Bush's approval rating being 71%. Four years later, on April 24, 2008, Gallup reported that 63% of Americans said that the United States made a mistake sending troops into Iraq. What changed? Well, I don't necessarily have the time or the space to get into the way that everything after Bush's mission accomplished speech went on May 1st, 2003, but the majority of U.S. military deaths in Iraq happened between 2004 and 2008. So by 2008, the opinion had completely shifted toward opposing the war, or at least regretting it. But what about those who didn't support the war to begin with? If you said that you didn't like the idea of the United States invading another country, what did that mean and how did that get you treated? The internet is littered with old op-eds that support the war, and I'm sure that if we went digging for them, I'd find people's old blogs or live journals or something from back in 2003 that showed them speaking out against the war, as well as the reactions they faced in comments. We could also look at the protest movement that did spring up in 2003. But there's two cultural moments that made villains out of those who dared to be contrarian to the United States and our foreign policy. And I would say that 20 years later, they remain the most memorable. Not because of what was said, but because of the vitriol they received in reaction. So I'm going to play a trailer. And hopefully that will give you some time to pour yourself a nice glass of Cabernet and get some pomme frites, because when we get back, we're going to France. It came from the depths of space, leaving death and destruction in its wake. It is called the Sun Eater because it eats suns. It, it, it's kind of in the name. It has latched on to the sun, robbing the Earth of its life giving heat and light. 
The heroes of the DC Universe have banded together with the greatest scientific minds in the world to stop the monster as the world begins to freeze. If they fail to stop the Sun Eater, the Earth and the rest of the solar system will see their final night. Hello there, I'm Jeffrey Taylor. And I'm Michael Bailey. We're the hosts of From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. We cover the Superman books that came out between 1986 and 2006. And we finally reached the end of our cover date in 1996, which means we have gotten to the final night. Because this is one of the better crossovers that DC has published, Jeff and I thought that it would be fun to treat this like the event it is and break up our coverage over four episodes. For those four episodes, we'll be covering the main series, issue by issue, as well as the Superman book that came out the same week. We'll also be taking briefer looks at the other crossover books to give Final Night the treatment it deserves. And if you're hearing this, that means all of the episodes are edited and ready to go, so it will be coming out on a weekly basis. Seriously? Yes, seriously. They're all edited? Yes, Jeff, they are. Edited and ready to go? Yes, Jeff. They are ready to go. Wow, that is surprising. Starting on March 30th... I mean, really surprising. Starting on March 30th... (laughs) Really, really surprising. Starting on March 30th... I I can hardly believe... Jeff, for the love of God, would you shut the f*** up and let me finish this? Yes, the episodes are done. Edited. Ready to go. Unless something prevents me from posting the XML files, the listeners will get a new episode every Thursday starting on March 30th, 2023. We're even going to follow it up with an Elsewhere slash Meanwhile episode the week after the final episode so we can go through the normal features we usually do during our coverage of a cover month. Okay. Sorry. Just kind of shocked is all. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure everyone is. But it's happening, so let's move along. Can I tell people they can find the show on Apple Podcasts, Audible, and Spotify? Sure. And that the home for the show is www.fortressofbailytude.com? Yes, and that it is part of the Fortress of Bailytude podcasting network. Cool. Well, you know, the sun is out. You really have the meditated... of France to support the U.S. and Iraq, triggering a symbolic protest. Uh, instead of offering French fries, some restaurants across the country are now calling them freedom fries. That message also being heard in Washington, now being served in congressional cafeterias. Freedom fries, and instead of French toast, you can get freedom toast. We ran across this story coming from, to us from Beaufort, North Carolina, where a uh, certain restaurant there is now saying they're not going to be serving any more French fries. That's what we're hearing, and uh, Neil Rowland, is, uh, he's the operator of this restaurant, it's Cubby's in Beaufort, uh, North Carolina, and there's Neil. He's joining us now live to tell us what this is all about. Hey, Neil, where'd the idea come from? We opened up our menu, and the word French just took us and grabbed us. So all of a sudden, we decided, you know what we're going to do? We're going to change our French fries to Freedom Fries in support of our uh, president, also our troops, to show support. 
That is a clip from CNN in 2003 covering the story of Freedom Fries. I'm sure a number of you are now remembering what all of this was like, and I have to tell you that it's kind of a half-forgotten thing that anyone younger than a certain age isn't likely to know about. I know this because last year I had some students come into my room and ask me if I knew what Freedom Fries were, and then I launched into a monologue about 2003, the lead-up to the Iraq War, the protest against France, and how I was wearing an onion on my belt, which was the style at the time. No, I'm never not going to do that bit. Anyway, Freedom Fries has its roots in the fact that as the United States was gearing up for war and making its case to the UN and the world, France did not support what we were doing. In fact, quite a number of European allies who were not Tony Blair held little support for the war. Much of the opposition came from le legitimate criticism of our country's reasons for undertaking the operation. In short, the logic we were using for our argument didn't add up. This led to diplomatic tension between the United States and European countries such as France and Germany, and culturally, it led to a lot of anti-French sentiment, and yes, it led to freedom fries. The idea behind freedom fries began with a diner in Beaufort, North Carolina, named Cubby's where the owner named Neil Rowland changed the name of French fries on the menu to Freedom Fries. According to interviews with him, the inspiration came from the World War I renaming of sauerkraut to Liberty Cabbage as part of a wave of anti-German sentiment. In an interview published on the Fox News Channel website, Rowland said, quote, Since the French are backing down, French fries and French everything needs to be banned. This got the attention of Republican Congressman Bob Ney, in which, in whose district Beaufort was in, who, along with Walter Jones, who was another Republican congressman from North Carolina, pushed for renaming French fries and French toast in the congressional cafeteria. A CNN story from March 11, 2003, notes that the changes were made official and has comments from Ney and Jones. Ney said, quote, This action today is a small but symbolic effort to show the strong displeasure of many on Capitol Hill with the actions of our so-called ally France. Jones, in a letter, said, quote, I represent a district with multiple military bases that have deployed thousands of troops. As I've watched these men and women wave goodbye to their loved ones, I am reminded of the deep love they have for the freedom of this nation and their desire to fight for the freedom of those who are oppressed overseas. Watching France's self-serving politics of passive aggression in this effort has discouraged me more than I can say. The article then notes that France has pressed the United Nations to give weapons inspectors more time in Iraq, saying the U.S. and British-led move to war is premature. In a 2005 Guardian article, Jones would be quoted as saying that the U.S. went to war with no justification. And he actually regretted the name change to Freedom Fries, saying it was a lighthearted gesture, but he wished it had never happened. By then, he'd become very opposed to the war. It was also quoted as saying, if we were given misinformation intentionally by people in this administration to commit the authority to send boys and then summons as girls to go into Iraq, that is wrong. Freedom Fries was changed back to French Fries in 2006 in Congress. Cubby's, the restaurant where it all began, has since closed, but you can still actually review, review some... Um, Comments on Yelp and reviews on Yelp. So here's a sampling of them. 
Here's one. The origin of freedom fries. America's dumbass and pathetic response to France not supporting the war on terror, a misinformed crusade for oil, and in control in the Middle East. Then we have burn in hell jingoistic shithole. And then there is a restaurant that fueled hatred toward the French for not supporting our war in Iraq. One star, that's all you get. And then there's this one from 2010. Freedom fries, freedom salad dressing. I was in your restaurant a couple of weeks ago and asked why they were called freedom fries. However, the young lady was perhaps too embarrassed to answer and only replied, that's just what the boss wants. Then it dawned on me, in parentheses, and freedom fries were not the idea of George Bush. On March 11, 2003, Representatives Robert Ney and Walter B. Jones declared that all references to French fries and French toast on the menus of the restaurants and snack bars run by the House of Representatives would be removed. House cafeterias were ordered to rename French fries to freedom fries. This action was carried out without a congressional vote under the authority of Ney's position as chairman of the Committee on House Administration, which oversees restaurant operations for the chambers. So Cubby's owner is clearly an immature lemming, so it, it is given that one can easily understand his thought process. Well, since France won't support our war in Iraq, we aren't going to call them French fries. We're going to call them freedom fries. Way to go. Way to show up the French. That will show them a thing or two. After eight years, I am certain they are going to collapse to peer pressure from those like you and support the war or perhaps throw in some troops. You are blatantly stupid. So as a favor in the spirit of goodwill, I will point out to you that French fries come from, wait for it, Belgium. French fries are so called such because they are Frenched or thinly sliced. So if I ever come in there to eat and I want a hamburger, do I have to ask for liberty meat? Note to Cubby's ownership, grow up. That comment, which was from David N. M. of Greenville, North Carolina, is a good segue into one of two pieces of media that showcase the whole Freedom Fries controversy. It's a documentary called Freedom Fries and Other Stupidity that we'll have to explain to our children. Produced in 2006, it is hosted by Bruce Gilman, PhD, who dives into the notion of symbolic gestures, especially those of protest, what they mean, and how they are ultimately ridiculous because they don't actually have any effect or, well, really lazy. As far as documentaries go, it's very independent. It's fairly low budget has some of the tone of one of the sillier segments with a kind of a snarkiness that you might see on your local news or maybe 2020. And yes, it's definitely one-sided. But it does help to elucidate the ridiculousness of freedom fries as well as some other anti-French protests, such as people in Los Angeles buying bottles of French wine and dumping them into the street outside the French consulate. One protester is quoted as saying, It all represents the blood the French have never spilled for freedom! Which honestly sums it up. You don't really have to watch much else to see how stupid this protest was. Yes, First Amendment rights, blah, blah, blah. But you're a fucking idiot if you truly believe that the French never fought and spilled blood for freedom. Did you pay attention in any of your history classes, dipshit? They not only overthrew their government multiple times in the 19th century in the name of freedom... But it's a pretty good bet that you wouldn't be wrapping yourself in the stars and stripes that you purchased from the America store at the mall if the French hadn't been on our side in the Revolutionary War. Marquis de Lafayette much, asshole? Anyway, 
What's interesting about the documentary is that it goes beyond pointing out the downright idiocy of anti-French protest to discuss the way that citizenship in our country has been wrapped up in consumerism and is mostly anti-consumerist. There's this really, really stupid recurring bit with a guy named the Reverend Billy of the Church of Stop Shopping that takes away from what is pretty a pretty good discussion about how spending money on things is so tied to our American way of life and our American identity. They highlight that notion of shopping as patriotism through some of W's post-9-11 speeches, and they talk about how for this war we're not really being asked to sacrifice Instead, we're just buying goods and services as an act of patriotism. You know, it's one thing to buy war bonds to literally help fund the First or Second World Wars. It's another thing to pay a few bucks at Rite Aid to get a yellow ribbon magnet for your car. The first is a sense of civic duty. The second is performance. And it's performance that is done in the laziest sort of way. A magnet does not inconvenience you in the least, in the same way that, say, posting a comment on an article or a Facebook post doesn't inconvenience you in the least. In fact, one of the points made is that as a culture, we overconsume and very often live above our means, and what we might need to think of is a lifestyle change. Well, this, this was made a couple of years before the financial crisis and the recession that began in 2008. It's a point that is still relevant today, as people still struggle with a rising cost of living. They still struggle with our culture's promotion of buying the new thing, or to use a cliche, keeping up with the Joneses. And they still struggle with the way that the short-term satisfaction of buying stuff is overshadowing the dwindling options to provide for our future. But hey, the French surrendered once, so all of that is moot. But really... Is that what all this boils down to? And we're simply supposed to think that the French suck because of all of it? That seems simple and childish. And thankfully, Anthony Bourdain had a great counter argument. I'm Anthony Bourdain. That's right. I write, I travel, I eat, and I'm hungry for more. Why the French Don't Suck was the premiere episode of Anthony Bourdain, No Reservations, his travel channel show that ran for a few years starting in 2005. No Reservations was actually the second of three travel shows that Bourdain hosted during his career on television, and all three are pretty much the same in that they use the same crew and concept, which was Bourdain traveling to a particular country or city and going to various places and meeting people while offering his commentary. Bourdain, who was one time a cook at the New York restaurant Leal, had come to prominence in the late 1990s with the book Kitchen Confidential, which is part memoir and part inside look at the restaurant industry. Kind of a all-the-things-they-won't-tell-you type of thing. This was followed up with a Cook's Tour, which was also the name of his first television show on the Food Network from 2002 to 2003. In 2005, he started No Reservations, which ran until 2012 when he migrated to CNN for Anthony Bourdain Parts Unknown, starting in 2013. I covered an episode of that show 
back at the tail end of In Country. It's either episode 98 or episode 99, where he went to Hanoi in uh, 2016 and, you know, toured things about the war and, uh, you know, in the city and also met up with uh, President Barack Obama, who happened to be there on a diplomatic trip in the they sat in a restaurant and ate uh, ate Vietnamese food and talked. It's it's a great episode if you ever want to watch it, and um, the uh, you can hear me talk about it in uh, in that episode of In Country. Now, as far as Bourdain himself, he had a reputation as a smart-ass, cynical bastard whose attitude belongs squarely within the New York of the late '70s and early '80s. So this isn't Rick Steves, your European travel dad. This is kind of like your asshole uncle, right? So our episode that we're talking about here opens by stating the premise. We're in Paris. Tony Bourdain is going to offer a counter-argument to the sentiment of the time. And just for context, we get him in fo- we get footage of him in a cab listening to a news report about how a resolution to change freedom fries back to French fries has failed in Congress. So this place is this place is filming sometime in like 20, 2003 or 2004. His thesis depends on his being a chef and the legacy of French cooking and French cuisine and the idea that you couldn't possibly hate the attitude and lifestyle of the French because it focuses so much just on enjoying life and enjoying the moment. Of course, there's more to it than that. There's a number of silly bits, uh, which as his shows went on would be less frequent, by the way. But what he does is decide to eschew the typical travel book advice for going local but he also um, keeps up to his like 70s, 80s alternative punk cool guy aesthetic. Honestly, I think Bourdain always kind of knew he was putting on an act for the television show. So when he does one of those more like, look out how cool I am bits, you know, like where he stays in the hotel room where Oscar Wilde spent his last days or he goes out in search of a hundred year old absinthe and trips out because of it, I let it go. Besides the other stuff, the whole idea of the real Paris experience, it's fascinating. It's worth the price of admission if you're watching the episode. Granted, it was free. I bought the DVDs years ago, but anyway. So the soul of Paris and the French, as it is, lay in food. It should be obvious considering our host. Bourdain shows us breakfast in the form of coffee and a croissant with a cigarette that he has while leisurely reading the newspaper, and he opines about living in the moment. For his other meals, he goes way more indulgent, one of the biggest being an elaborate lunch at Chez Denis, a bistro in Paris that has been open for more than 100 years. By the way, it's still open. The point he makes here is twofold. First, this huge meal he's eating is the epitome of French cooking. There's a lot of pride in the way things are prepared, served, and enjoyed. Second, he says... Quote, food is important. It's part of their collective history. And to emphasize that, he takes us to where food comes from, the Rangis International Market. This is essentially the meat market and slaughterhouse that would replace the famed Leal market that was in the center of Paris for an incredibly long time. And it's the namesake, uh, Leal was the namesake of Bourdain's former restaurant. It's here where he shows us animals that have been brought in freshly killed as well as already processed. He talks about the seasonality of French eating. It's a bit of romanticizing of the French, of course, but it seems like his mission here is to not only show us the cozy local things in Paris, 
but go as behind the scenes as he can. He takes us to Chez Robert et Louise, another long-standing establishment for, in Paris for a late night, and I mean late night, like 10 o'clock p.m. dinner, where he eats blood sausage and head cheese followed up by Cote de Boeuf and potatoes, the former of which, not my taste, the latter of which looked amazing. That, that restaurant's still open, by the way. I looked at the menu. The menu was just kind of reading. I was like, this all looks really good, and I want it right now. Again, this is all about indulgence. And, and, you know, Americans are very good at indulgence, but the difference that he presents seems to be about savoring the indulgence instead of just massively consuming it. It's not like the French are without their foibles, but he does wonder if we could stand to learn something from them about having a healthier relationship with the capitalist hamster wheel. There's real appreciation for craft throughout the episode as well, especially in his final stop at a boulangerie in the wee hours of the morning to see the daily bread being made. And finally, he goes to a cafe and he opines on how the French celebrate the senses and food in general. He questions our puritanical notion that we should be wary of taking pleasure in our food and suggests essentially that we slow the heck down. It had been years since I watched this episode, and a few years since I actually watched any of Bourdain's television shows at all. I have to say that I've forgotten how much I enjoyed No Reservations when it was on. Amanda and I used to tune into it just about every week. The idea here that we need to put our way or whatever obnoxious attitude we have as Americans and take a look at what another culture is like, it's not a new one. But I think that if there was anyone who could do a solid job of mounting a defense of the French in the aughts, it was Anthony Bourdain. I mentioned earlier when I talked about Freedom Fries and the Freedom Fries documentary that Americans have an almost religious adherence to consumerism. And when it comes to food, mass and expediency seem to override other characteristics. Bourdain, when he's in Paris, eats a couple of enormous meals, especially at lunch. But that lunch takes its time. So it's not like he's sucking down broccoli cheddar soup in a bread bowl in 10 minutes at a crowded Panera. Why are we rushing so much anyway? Work? I think that in the last few years, there have been more than a few people starting to question that. What I think is most important to point out in the whole Freedom Fries blow up in 2003 was what it actually was about. When the French government criticized the United States' aggression toward Iraq, they had a very specific points to make. They wanted to give the UN weapons inspectors more time. They thought the logic behind our case for going to war was specious as best. They, along with other European powers, were actively trying to avoid war. They did not see it as a viable solution to the problem. All of these reasons were policy-related. They were action-related. The response, though, was to attack the French identity in ways that were, quite frankly, baffling and even stupid. I mean, it didn't stop my wife and I from honeymooning in Paris in November 2003, even though we got questions from more than one relative about whether or not we thought it was a good idea to go. What did they think was going to happen? After all, the French had grievances with the government, with President Bush, not our people. Plus, Parisians give as much of a shit about other people as New Yorkers do on a regular basis. They don't give a crap whether or not I'm there. Again, baffling and stupid. 
But while Freedom Fries stayed on the menu in the congressional cafeteria in 2006 before being quietly renamed to French Fries, and relations with France warmed back up by 2005 with a March 7, 2005 article in The Guardian detailing the ways that the two countries had reestablished their special relationship, and you knew it was going to die down you know, because it was a foreign government, they were a long-time alley, our two countries always had something to gain from mutual beneficial, you know, I mean, like, this happens all the time, right? So it kind of fell down the memory hole of popular culture. A lot of us who were there remember it, but it didn't get, you know, it's not history book level stuff. It's, it's more of a trivia item. But that's a foreign country, right? That's a foreign government. And it's easy to target a foreign government when they say something because it's just, you know, the same way that we used to gripe about Russia and many of us still do. What happens, though, when someone for your own country, someone who has a public platform, uses it to push back and express their contrary opinion about the war? <laughs> well, you knew I wasn't going to do an episode about pop culture in the Iraq war without talking about the Dixie Chicks, right? Of course not. I'll talk about them right after this. Stick around. Monthly, monthly, monthly. It's Action Film Face Off. Hello, I'm Jason the Weasel Skull Albrick, and I'd like to tell you about a podcast I do with my brother, Jared Albrick, the yard sale artist. Action Film Face Off! Yes, thank you, Jared. Action Film Face Off is a podcast where my brother and I, who are both military combat vets... Jason was a Navy SEAL! Jason was not a Navy SEAL. Jason was a military intelligence wing. But anyway, in each episode of Action Film Face-Off, we select two different action films. Some of them have Chuck Norris. Technically speaking, none of them have had Chuck Norris yet. But it could happen, because we use a randomizer set between 1970 and modern day to select our two films. So you'll always get two films, each from a different year. Our randomizer has spikes on it. We use a Google random number generator, so it does not have spikes on it. And we put the films into our video dome arena. It also has spikes. It does not have spikes. <laughs> but we discuss the films and score them through six different rounds of criteria. I score Bond films very high. Okay, that's true. But anyway, by the end of the episode, we crown one of the action films the champion of action film face-off. Next episode, Jason fights a bear. <laughs> Jason is not fighting a bear, but please give our show a listen. We're part of the Longbox Crusade Network of Shows. Pat Sampson killed a man with a sword once. I can neither confirm nor deny that statement. But you can find us on iTunes, Google Play, and most podcatchers under Longbox Crusade. Or you can subscribe to just our show by searching for Action Film Face-Off. Come see the blood fly! And that's Action Film Face-Off. We do, indeed, invite you to come and see The Blood Fly. I just said that. (laughs) 
the United States and our allies are authorized to use force in ridding Iraq of weapons of mass destruction. Behind the growing build-up to war, there's also a growing anti-war movement. We're ashamed the President of the United States is from Texas. Try not to be judgmental of the president. I'll tell you why. He's got sky-high approval. The war couldn't be going better. The people who got it all started was a right-wing group called the Free Republic. They should send her to Iraq, strap her to a bomb, and just drop her over Baghdad. They're attempting to manipulate the American media, and the American media is falling for it. The Red Cross wouldn't take a million dollars from us. Well, you do know that George W. Bush is the honorary chairman. The radio station set up these garbage cans for people to throw out their CDs. They had the hottest song in the country, and it died. All these radio stations, they won't play them. We call and ask, and they won't. We are a confederation of 270 individual stations. You made play. a decision from corporate headquarters that was binding on your DJ. Mr. Chairman. And just prior to that, you say that you're an independent radio station. That's a total contradiction. <laughs> Natalie Maines will be shot dead Sunday, July 6th. The Bible Center is working with police to provide extra security surrounding the Dixie Chicks concert. It's easy for people to write ugly things and hateful things, but when somebody hates you so much for what you say that they want to kill you. USA! 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 We're a sisterhood. We go through the good, the bad, and the ugly all together. From the two-time Academy Award-winning director Barbara Koppel and Cecilia Peck. Freedom of speech is fine, but my God, you don't do it in mass publicly. Shut up and sing. They shouldn't have their feelings hurt just because some people don't want to buy their records. They shouldn't have their feelings hurt. What a dumb... That was the trailer for the documentary Dixie Chicks Shut Up and Sing, which debuted in 2006 around the time their album Taking the Long Way came out. This details the band's life during and after the controversy that arose when lead singer Natalie Maines made comments about President Bush at a concert in England. I'll get to that and to the documentary during the segment, but first I do have to make one note. So in 2020, the group changed their name to The Chicks because of the negative connotation of the word Dixie. I used their former name right before the break and we're referencing the title of the documentary, but from here on out, I'm going to be referring to them as the Chicks. I realize that it's not historically accurate because they were known by another name back then, but the decision that they made was something I agree with and respect, so I don't feel the need to use that word anymore, even for the sake of historical accuracy. So, if you are unfamiliar with the controversy, or you just don't remember it very well, on March 10, 2002, the Chicks were kicking off their Top of the World tour in London at the concert hall Shepherd's Bush Empire. Right before the group played their song Travelin' Soldier, which is about an American soldier in Vietnam who has a relationship with a young woman through letters they write back and forth to one another, Natalie Maines said, Just so you know, we're on the good side with y'all. We do not want this war, this violence, and we're ashamed that the President of the United States is from Texas. The crowd cheered, the band played the song, and the concert went on without incident. Betty Clark of The Guardian began her review by noting Maines' words, and here are the first couple of paragraphs. 
The chicks are the good time girls the country establishment loves to hate. Too direct, too old-fashioned, too modern, you name it, it's been slung at the Texan trio. The old vanguard liked their women feisty but second class, preferably wearing cowgirl outfits and a smile. But the Dixie chicks were renegade ladies of country who sung gleefully about killing abusive spouses and dressed like an older Britney Spears. Add the success they have had selling a progressive bluegrass sound to fans of ignorant of banjos and whistles, and you have an emasculating threat. And they don't know when to stop. Just so you know, says singer Natalie Maines, we're ashamed the President of the United States is from Texas. It gets the audience cheering at a time when country stars are rushing to release pro-war anthems. This is practically punk rock. Once conservative pundits and country music radio, which had been helping to beat the drums of war by playing its fair share of patriotic country music, got a hold of this, the reaction was swift and vitriolic. The chicks were, in a word, canceled. The music was blacklisted from country radio. There were calls from bands of their performances and Lipton, the tour's sponsor, dropped their sponsorship. Mains would go on to issue two apologies in the day following. First, she said, we support the troops. There is nothing more frightening than the notion of going to war with Iraq and the prospect of all the innocent lives that will be lost. I feel the president is ignoring the opinions of many in the U.S. and alienating the rest of the world. My comments were made in frustration, and one of the privileges of being an American is that you are free to voice your own point of view. The second one was, as a concerned American citizen, I apologize to President Bush because my remark was disrespectful. I feel that whoever holds that office should be treated with utmost respect. Well, we are, cur- we are currently in Europe and witnessing a huge anti-American sentiment as a result of the perceived rush to war. While war may remain a viable option, as a mother, I just want to see every possible alternative exhausted before children and American soldiers' lives are lost. I love my country. I am a proud American. Even George W. Bush had a response when asked about it on April 24th of that year. And this was, The chicks are free to speak their mind. They can say what they want to say. They shouldn't have their feelings hurt just because someone, some people don't want to buy their records when they speak out. Freedom is a two-way street. I don't really care what the chicks said. I want to do what I think is right for the American people. And if some singers or Hollywood stars feel like speaking out, that's fine. That's the great thing about America. But for many, the press done after the incident, as well as the president's comments, weren't enough. The band further courted controversy in the May 2nd, 2003 issue of Entertainment Weekly, where they gave an extended interview regarding the incident, as well as the reaction to it. There are comparisons throughout the article and a number of other pieces about the of the chicks to John Lennon and his infamous We're Bigger Than Jesus comment and the backlash against that, as well as Jane Fonda's infamous 1973 visit to North Vietnam. And if you weren't sure what the chicks were hearing from their detractors, all you had to do was look at the cover, which was incendiary. The, that cover of Entertainment Weekly features the chicks naked and covered in some of the epithets that were hurled at them, including Big Mouth, Traitors, Dixie Sluts, and Saddam's Angels, among more positive words like Patriot, Hero, Free Speech, and Brave. All of this, as I mentioned, was documented in Shut Up and Sing!, which was directed by Barbara Koppel and Cecilia Peck. Koppel directed the landmark Academy Award-winning 1976 documentary Harlan County, USA, which detailed the 1973 Kentucky miners' strike. 
Shut Up and Sing begins with the chicks in the middle of recording their 2006 follow-up album and then flashing back to them being, well, as the tour title said, the top, the top of the world. They sang the national anthem at the Super Bowl in 2003. They had a big press conference to launch their tour before heading to England, where Maines made her now infamous comments. The documentary moves back and forth between the present day of 2005 and 2006 and the past of 2003 in order to show both the immediate fallout from the controversy as well as their efforts to regroup and record a new album. What I gathered from watching was that the documentary was using clips from a road diary and was also going to be a making of piece for a band that had been at their peak. Had Maines not made the comments, I'm sure they would have had a documentary made about them anyway, except of this being, say, Rattle and Hum, it ended up becoming Gimme Shelter. The filmmakers mix in news footage and actually interview some of the radio DJs and programming managers who refused to play their music. They also include the behind-the-scenes footage of that Entertainment Weekly cover shoot and the coaching that went into interviews that they gave in March and April of 2003, especially one with Diane Sawyer for ABC News. Footage also includes their manager and PR team trying their best to handle not only the backlash to Means' comments, but also the financial fallout. And that fallout continued into 2006 when, when Taking the Long Way came out, and they're still not on country radio. They have problems selling out shows in large parts of the U.S., especially in the South. Now, this is in addition to a fascinating portrait of the band, their families, and their creative process. Taking the Long Way was produced by Rick Rubin. That added a little more interest, at least for me, because I'm familiar with his work in the hip-hop world, as well as his albums with Johnny Cash, for instance. But in focusing on the controversy, I feel that this documentary serves as a good historical record. Obviously, it's one-sided because it gives the chick's point of view during a time when they were being pilloried and we're meant to have a lot of sympathy for them and their families. But it helps elucidate a few things and even put lie to a few others. For instance, one of the angles that a number of news outlets, including Diane Sawyer to a certain extent, took in 2003 was that because Maines was the one who opened her mouth, then it must have been all her. The rest of the band was probably really, really mad at her. Of course, this is the perpetual narrative of women backstabbing and stepping over other women instead of supporting them. But we see a pretty united trio in front of and behind the cameras. We see a good collection of news footage of people who hate them, from pundits to DJs to men and women on the street. Some of what those people say are things like calling them bimbos, or as one man so eloquently put it, dumb foolish women who deserve to be slapped around. There's plenty of people who say that free speech is all right as long as you don't say such things in public. And there's even coverage of a concert in Texas that had to have beefed up security because of a very specific threat made against Natalie Maines. I believe Toby Keith also at one point sang about putting his boot up Natalie Maines' ass, which sparked a public feud between the two. Just as important as the conservative howling, though, is the corporate reaction and the role that corporations play in this whole thing. Like I said, when they're doing the Entertainment Weekly photo shoot, we see the chick's manager and PR person talking about how this is going to affect everything. In fact, we see their whole team doing damage control during the movie and during the controversy. The corporate liaison for Lipton nervously tells them about whether or not the company is going to continue to sponsor the tour, and they won't. 
And we also see the record label, Sony, grow increasingly nervous over the radio blacklist because their singles, chart positions, and album sales dropped hard once the backlash began, something that was going to be hard to recover from in 2003 because this is smack in the middle of the Clear Channel era where radio stations were very, very corporately programmed. For all I know, they still are, but this was like to the point where there were congressional hearings about it. And we even see John McCain grilling a radio executive about that issue and bring up the chicks as an example of the amount of control they have over both the music industry and the idea of free speech. The documentary ends in 2006 with the chicks returning to the scene of the crime as it was, once again playing Shepherd's Bush Empire and Maine saying that they're Still embarrassed that the President of the United States is from Texas. The film was released, like I said, as the album Taking the Long Way came out, and the controversy was still in the mind of the public. It's also continued to plague them and other female country music singers, at least from the corporate angle. Now, Merle Haggard had come out in defense of the chicks, calling what happened to them a verbal lynching and saying that the backlash against them was insulting to those who have died in wars, Quote, when almost the majority of America jumped down their throats for simply voicing an opinion. What's more telling, though, is what Taylor Swift told The Guardian in 2019. In this interview, she's asked about how up until recently she had been very quiet about her political views and rarely, if ever, talked about politics. And this is her response. Quote, I come from country music. The number one thing they absolutely drill into you as a country artist, and you can ask any other country artist about this, is don't be like the chicks. I watched country music snuff that candle out. The most amazing group we had just because they talked about politics. And they were getting death threats. They made such an example that basically every country artist that came after that, every label tells you, just don't get involved no matter what. And that was in 2019. Now, as for the chicks and that next album, Taking the Long Way, they famously wrote a couple of songs to address the issue. The title track is about the chicks' lack of conformity in the face of the controversies, as well as an acknowledgement that they never do make anything easy on themselves. But more importantly is the song that directly addresses the controversy, which the chicks co-wrote with Dan Wilson of the band Semisonic. It's called Not Ready to Make Nice. I'm not sure I could They say Time heals everything But I'm still waiting It is a damn near perfect response. Because instead of trying to back away from it or sidestepping it by crouching into some sort of story or metaphor... Maines goes right for the controversy, expressing how she is still angry and honestly done with any effort to reconcile with those who were vicious. The chorus itself spells it out. My 
favorite line from that, by the way, is I'm mad as hell and can't bring myself to do what it is you think I should. And then there's the bridge of the song, which gets even more honest. In my bed and sleep like a baby with no regrets and I don't mind saying it's a sad, sad story when a mother will teach her daughter that she ought to hate a perfect stranger and how in the world can the words that I said send somebody so over the edge that they'd write me a letter saying that I better share them and sing on my lap for the open I mean you can't write them better than that. And the whole album, by the way, it's a great album. Taking the Long Way won five Grammys in 2007, including the big ones, Album of the Year, Record of the Year, and Song of the Year. Now, one thing I have thought about a whole lot while looking back at the chicks in this controversy is the way that free speech can be discussed, especially where it concerns consequences for what you say. So in the general sense, everyone has a right to say something and was in the right for taking the action or saying something. With the exception of the literal death threats that were sent their way, I can't abide that. Anyway, you have people exercising their right to petition the chicks for a redress of grievances. But it was so visceral as far as criticism goes. And the sense that you should show fealty to the leader of your country, or as many yelled their way, respect the office of the president, doesn't hold a lot of water with me when said people were more than likely not showing respect to the office of the president when they were engaging in dog-whistling and birtherism theories about Barack Obama. Of course, the chicks didn't get the racism. They got the misogyny. And that brings me to what gets me worked up about all of this, and that is the misogyny behind so much of it. I really do wonder if Kenny Chesney, Brad Paisley, or Blake Shelton, all of whom were top 10 country artists in 2003, would have had the same severe backlash if they'd said what Natalie Maines had said. Would their CDs have been disposed of in very public ways? Would they have been blacklisted from country radio? Would they have been accused of being in league with Saddam Hussein? Would they have been called sluts, bimbos, and dumb, foolish women who deserve to be slapped around? Earlier, I mentioned that this controversy was compared to the John Lennon bigger than Jesus comment back in the 1960s, but I can actually offer up a better comparison. It's one that people of my age will remember as well. On October 3rd, 1992, after performing a cover of Bob Marley's song, War, Sinead O'Connor held up a picture of Pope John Paul II and tore it to pieces before saying, fight the real enemy. Her point was a protest against the sex abuse that had been occurring within the Catholic Church and the way that the church's governing body had been covering it up. She was not listened to. The backlash was severe, with the following week's SNL host, Joe Pesci, saying that if he were there, he would have smacked her. There were also similar displays of people destroying her albums, and she was booed off stage during the Bob Dylan tribute concert at Madison Square Garden soon after. That's in addition to being driven through the mud by the media. I distinctly remember the headline of Sinead Rips Pope on the cover of one of the New York tabloids. I think it was probably the New York Post, but it might have been the Daily News. Of course, she was right about the Catholic Church. And Natalie Maines, who was speaking out about our invasion of Iraq, also right 
for the most part. As I mentioned, by 2006, there was considerably different public opinions about the Iraq War, with about two-thirds of the public saying it was not worth the cost. Yeah, that's all hindsight. But let's face it, history has its long lists of Cassandras. There's a point toward the end of Shut Up and Sing when the chicks release Taking the Long Way and start their tour where the media coverage is both a comeback story and a few people in the media expressing sort of regret as to how the band was treated. Or at least they acknowledge that the chicks were right, even if it irreparably damaged their career. And much of the film shows them knowing that they were facing consequences for what they said, as well as the stress that came with it. And I wonder how much those who get on social media and stomp their feet about their right to be bigoted know what happened 20 years ago, or if they even care. I'm going to bet they don't, and also don't appreciate or even recognize the irony. By the 2010s, Iraq and the Iraq War were clearly in the rear view. The magnets had disappeared from many of the SUVs, and attention had turned to other matters, such as the president wearing a tan suit. Really, though, some of 2003 kind of went down the memory hole for people, and the younger generation who were little when the controversy erupted didn't really know much about it. I remember having a conversation with a few students back in, oh, it must have been like 2011 or 2012. They thought that the Iraq War had never been popular, and I had to explain to them that Bush's approval rating was through the roof in March of 2003, and there was an enormous amount of support for the war. Now, they only knew from their regret. And like I said, just last year, I had to tell my students a story about Freedom Fries. Celebrity controversies seem silly at times. Public outcries can seem silly at times. When hindsight finally settles in, we often hear phrases like, got caught up in the moment. But that can also be a way to evade being accountable for acting in a way that is mean and even downright hateful without doing anything to counter or correct the behavior. It's one thing to say support the war, then see the error of your ways and then express the opposite in a visible way. It's another thing to use I was caught up in the moment or it was a different time as like a justification or excuse for being hateful. You know, you've been a teenager or a child in 2003, then yeah, I can see how you would justify what you said or believe those words. As you get older, it does tend to be less and less of an excuse. I don't know what the statute of limitations are for these things and how long you can go before you, ha- before you need to stop apologizing for something you said in the past. But in those moments, you're an adult, you're clearly revealing something about yourself. You have to think about that. As I say this, we've just passed the 20th anniversary of those very incidents that I'm talking about. Now, I don't watch enough network or cable news. Really, I don't really watch any network or cable news. So I have no idea if there are any retrospective specials coming up about the Iraq War. If there are, I'm not likely to watch many of them, even though I'm curious as to what angle they might take. Do we need them anyway? Okay, that's dumb. We do need them because the media and our culture crave packaged memories. But so much of the raw footage or articles about the war, the protests, the controversies, it's all online. At the same time, this episode was still tough to put together. Part of the difficulty was finding the time to watch and read everything I needed to. <laughs> part of The other part was having the emotions of everything come back up and seeing how so much has not changed or how it has even intensified over the last two decades. 
albeit in other contexts about other topics and with other platforms. The country has become in many ways tougher to exist in, or at least we've had our eyes open to how hard it has always been for so many. I hope you enjoyed this look back, and if you have any comments or memories you'd like to share about this time or these incidents, feel free to email me, leave me messages on social media. I'll put them into the next episode toward the end feedback. Speaking of the next episode, um, I'm not sure. (laughs) Come back in a month anyway, you'll find out. So as always, thank you very much for listening, and take care. Well, I'm never seen a Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, which is produced by me, Tom Panneries. All clips are copyright their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. This podcast is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you can find at twotruefreaks.com. If you like the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps the show get noticed by other people. Feedback via email can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. For show notes and essays and other things random in the world of popular culture, visit popcultureaffidavit.com. You can also follow this show on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit and on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. Thanks for listening and come back next time for more pop culture randomness.